speed. So Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to start. I'm going to read our text for this morning, then I'll pray, and we'll dive into, uh, we'll dive into the sermon uh, that way. So let's go. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no longer depend, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. As we prepare to meditate and think on God's word, let us go into a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the things that I uh, love about what I get to do in, in terms of being a pastor and preaching week in and week out is really getting to dive into the study of Scripture. Uh, I absolutely, I love it. I, I, I just count it as one of the great privileges that I get to do it. And one of the reasons that I love studying Scripture, and particularly studying books of the Bible like we're doing with Galatians, where we just start at the beginning and we walk our way through it, is I really get to see how the text fits together and, and, and the major themes that are coming out of the text. And, and what I've been loving about Galatians, uh, and, and I kind of knew this, it's like one of those things you know because you, you know, I've read the book a number of times, even though I've never like sat down and, and studied it in a way that I was going to preach it. I've read through the book a number of times, and so I knew this, but as I prepared to, as I preach and prepare my sermons every single week, it just is blatantly obvious that the book of Galatians is about one thing and one thing only, like the gospel. And, and, and I knew this like when I sat down and started breaking out, okay, we're going to do these verses this week and these verses this week and these verses this week. You kind of get this overview of like, okay, this is a theme or this is an idea that I can hit on this week and here's something I can talk about this week and I can see the direction I'm going to go over here. So I kind of knew that, but I didn't really know it until we got into this. And I'm like, oh, Paul is just saying the same thing 
over and over and over again. He's just hitting it from all these different angles. And so uh, Ryan, Ryan texted me this week, and he's like, I think it was Monday or something like that. He's like, give me the high overview of where you're going to be going on Sunday. And I was just like, the gospel. Like, that's it. Like, this is just, that's the only thing Paul is doing. And so we're going to do it again this morning. Now, one of the ways that Paul does it in the book of Galatians, and he, and he starts in chapter 1, and he just carries this this method through the entire book is by looking at the gospel, by contrasting the gospel with the law, right? So he, he, he wants us to really think about the relationship that the gospel has to the law and how different than it is from the law. And part of, I think, the reason that Paul wants us to really spend time unpacking and looking at the relationship between the gospel and the law is because the law is so natural to us as human beings, Right? The, the, law is, the law is a list of commands and do's and don'ts. It's all of that. But it's also the standard, right? There's this standard that we must adhere to in, in order to be considered the people of God. And, and this idea that there's some standard or there's an expectation that we have to fulfill in order to be accepted, well, that's just the way that the world operates. That's, that's what we understand, right? It, 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 we, we understand that in our relationships with each other. Right? Relationships that where we, we understand that in order to have any sort of intimacy, that there has to be a certain level of trust. There has to be some communication. There has to be honesty. Right? There's these expectations that exist, and if you fail to live into those expectations within a relationship, well, that relationship is going to deteriorate. That relationship is going to break down. It's not going to be what it's supposed to be. All of that. We understand that in order for this thing to function, in order to be accepted within it, we have to adhere to a particular code. We understand this within social groups. Like if we're going to be a part of a social group, then we have to accept and live into the values of that social group. So if you think back to high school, you've got these different cliques and different groups that happen, right? If you're a jock, then you've got to to adhere to a certain level of code and you've got to do certain things and you're certainly not going to be in musicals, right? And if you're in music, if you're like in band, then you're likely not going to do other things. And because as soon as you do that, and all of a sudden you're crossing boundary lines, you're crossing group lines, and you're not adhering to particular values and to particular ways of living into that code. We see this right now in politics. This is one of the reasons that I think our politics in this day and age are so polarized is because this idea of there being a particular code is really, really prominent. And so if you're a Democrat, you cannot be pro-life. And the moment you even think about being pro-life, you're cast out of the group. Whereas the same thing happens with a Republican. Like the minute you might think about a little bit of tax increases or maybe some social safety nets as being a good thing, then all of a sudden now you're being pushed out of that group and you're no longer a, a, an accepted member, right? This is what we understand. And all of this is a kind of law. There's a code. There's a standard. There's an expectation. There are certain values. There are certain ways of being and talking and living that you have to adhere to in order to be accepted. And this is what religion has long been. Religion has long been about this kind of law, these standards. There are commands to follow. There are do's and don'ts. And you must do these things in order to please the divine and keep your good standing with the particular deity. And this was religion for thousands of years until Jesus Jesus comes and rather than abolishing the idea of the law or of a standard does something completely different. Jesus doesn't do away with the law or the standard, but rather fulfills the law to perfection and then invites people to share in his righteousness. 
that the righteousness of Christ is imparted to us. And so when we declare that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ. We are in Christ. We are connected. We are under his umbrella. We belong to. We're family members. We're co-heirs, right? This is the language that we are used, or that we use. And, and this, this standing, this acceptance is not something we earn, but rather it is a gift of grace. It is a gift of grace that is given to us. It is the gift of worshiping the God who takes on human form, who is the good shepherd, who goes out and follow, finds the lost sheep and brings them home. It is the gift of grace of the God who is like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. This is what our hope is in. This is what our faith is in. It is in grace. And because of grace, when we have faith in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. Now, this understanding and this, this reality that Paul has been talking about for the last couple of weeks, or at least he's been talking about in the letter, we've been looking at it for the last couple of weeks, or a couple of months now. It's been a while. But we're there, so we're talking about it. It raises the question, okay, if we as Christians are under grace and the law has been fulfilled, how then do we relate to the law? Right? Like, what's its purpose? And we can't write it off. It's still part of our canon, right? It, it, exit, like, you can flip to your Bibles in the beginning, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're still there. The law is still in our book. We don't get just to throw them out. And, and, and some have tried to do that, and, and some still do try to do that, that they say that the Old Testament doesn't matter, the laws don't matter at all, because we are now in the New Covenant, we're in the New Testament, and this is a heresy that's gone back thousands of years called Marcionism, right? Marcionism says that the, that the Old Testament was one God, and then now in the New Testament, in Jesus, we've got a different God, so we can just disregard the Old Testament. But the church has said, no, 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 that's heresy. The Old Testament still matters. It is important for the church to study. Well, okay, that's great, but then what do we do with it? Do we, because we know we don't have to keep the law in order to be a part of God's community, God's people. So, so the law isn't how we relate to God, and the law isn't the defining mark of our being children of God. The law isn't what offers us salvation. The law isn't what offers us hope. So, so what do we do with it? How do we relate to the law? Now, I know, well, maybe I don't know this. Maybe you do wrestle with that explicit question on a daily basis, but my guess is, is that most of us aren't regularly asking that question of how do I relate to the law now that I am under grace in Christ, right? We may talk about that in some Bible studies. We may talk about that uh, in, in certain small groups or if you are someone who's super interested in the theology, like maybe that comes up. But on the most part, for most of us, that's not a question that we're wrestling with. How do I relate to the law? At least not explicitly. I think implicitly it's a question that we wrestle with on a pretty regular basis. It just shows up in different forms. We, we, we ask questions like, According to the Bible, how should I relate to my spouse? Right? What does the Bible say about how I should spend my money? 
what does the Bible say about lies? And what, it, what, what constitutes a lie? What's a lie and what's a white lie? Right? Uh, it, it, when, I was in, when I was a youth pastor, this was a question that came up a lot. You know, like, in a dating relationship, how far is too far? Right? As parents, how, how, do I, how do I parent in such a way that it would be pleasing to God? These questions are all good. I think they're questions we ought to wrestle with and we ought to explore. But again, I think if we really were to look, look at that and examine it, we'd see that those are questions that are ultimately stemming from the deeper question of how do I relate to the law? How do I relate to God's standard, to the code that God has set forth? What, what's my relationship to that? And how do I live according to that? And what does that mean now that I'm in Christ? And this is what Paul is addressing this morning in this text. And he does it in a really unique way. Paul gets at this question by looking at two historical figures in the life of Israel, Abraham and Moses. Now, Abraham and Moses, if, if you've been around church circles and have some religious background, you understand that Abraham and Moses are significant people in the life of Israel, and yet they play very different roles. So just real quick, let's examine these two roles. Number one, you have Abraham. Abraham is the man to whom God comes. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to establish a relationship with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And you are going to have descendants that are as many as the stars in the sky. Now, it's an odd thing because when God comes to Abraham, Abraham is quite old and has no children. Yet, God promises this to Abraham. Not only does God promise children to Abraham, but he promises an inheritance, a land, which is in a way was a salvation, right? He's, this is what God is promising Abraham. Abraham, I will be your God. I, I promise to bless you. I will watch over you. So this is Abraham, and this is who he is in the life of Israel. He is the father, the, the patriarch. Moses comes along 430 years later, and you have, in, in the case of Moses, God is responding to his people, to Abraham's children. Abraham's children are now in Egypt. They're enslaved by Egypt. They're crying out to God. God hears their cries, and in response to their cries, he raises up Moses. Moses then uh, has that whole interaction with Pharaoh, and uh, we got the plagues going on, right? The blood, the frogs, the locusts, uh, the killing of the firstborn son. All of that happens. Egypt lets Israel out. Israel goes out, crosses the Red Sea, and then they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gives Israel, through Moses, the law. Okay? So you have Abraham. God comes to Abraham, promises, makes a promise to Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will have many children. You will be a great nation. All the nations will be blessed through you. 430 years later, God comes to Moses and says, here's a whole bunch of rules. You need to keep these. This is the law. Now, one way to read these two events is to say, okay, God gave a promise to Abraham and to his descendants, and now the rules have changed a little bit because God is giving to Moses a list of rules. So on the one hand, it's just like God promises to Abraham, and now it seems like God is saying to Moses, if you want to get the promise, if you want the blessing, then you've got to keep the rules. You see, like, that, that's where the change happens here. That's where the, God seems to be changing the rules on the fly. Promise to law. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The law doesn't set aside the promise 
of the covenant that God established with Abraham. Because if it's true, if it's true that the law sets aside that promise, then God gave the promise knowing, because God is omniscient, and God you know, knows what's going to happen, knowing that one day he would sort of say, no, 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 I changed my mind on this. Let me try to say this another way. And God promised Abraham an inheritance. That inheritance is salvation in a sense. Right? Because Abraham's going to move from being a foreigner to being one who has an, his, his own land. He's going to belong. He's going to have a place. He's going to have the favor of God. He's going to have the blessing of God. That's the promise. And God says to Abraham, I promise you this. And then to Moses, he says, eh, never mind. I'm not going to save you based on the promise. I'm not going to give you blessing based on a promise. Instead, I'm going to give you blessing based on performance. Keep the law. And Paul says, no, it, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it's not promise and then no promise and then law. And it's not some combination of the truth. It's either law or promise. But it can't be both. I, I want to try to flesh out this distinction because I think it's really important. So I'm going to use a really simple example. Right now we are, well, maybe it's not that, in no way am I making any statement about us as people in this. But right now we're potty training Evelyn. All right, so like, we're potty training Evelyn, and we've, we've worked out a deal with Evelyn from the very beginning, right? Said, if you go on the potty, you get an M&M, right? We're generous folks. One M&M. Well done. Here, here's a crumb. Uh, so uh, anyway, so we say, if you go on the potty, you get an M&M, and it's completely performance-based. She has to complete a task in order to get the treat, Right? What we never said to Evelyn, and what the deal we never made with her is, we never promised, hey, we're going to give you some M&Ms. Right? There was, never, there was never this unconditional, we are going to give you something. It was always tied to performance. Right? But if we had, do you see, in this instance, it would be very different to tie something, the receiving of the treat or the blessing, to tie it to performance is very different than tying it to simply a promise with no condition. Right? It's one or the other. In no way is it both. It's promise or it's performance. It's grace or it's works. And Paul is clear in this passage in Galatians. God's promise of salvation has always been grace from the very beginning, go all the way back to Abraham. Tim Keller, again, another example to help us wrap our, to, to get this concept. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author out of New York City, he uses this example and he says this. He says, okay, if I came to you and I said, hey, you know, I, I, I think you're a fascinating individual. Like, I actually, I love spending time with you. I, I think you're wonderful. Uh, to have a conversation with you is just amazing. And I've been telling you, I've, I've been talking you up to my rich uncle, right? And, and he just thinks you sound incredible. And so he's, he's promised he's going to give you $10 million. All you got to do is go meet him. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no condition. Like, he's promised to give you this. All you have to do in order to receive this is believe it. That belief is going to cause you to act, right? You're going to go do it. But it's just like, all you got to do like, is believe the promise. You're going to get $10 million because you're stellar, right? You all deserve that. No amens. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. Now, if instead I said, hey, you're awesome and fascinating, and I love talking with you. I've been talking you up with my uncle. My uncle, who is very rich, by the way, uh, he... 
He would love for you to come and live with him and care for him until, you're dying, until he dies of old age. And once you do that, he'll give you $10 million. Right? Now it's performance-based. There's a condition attached. You have to you have to care for him. You have to fulfill the requirements. There's a con- it's conditional. Versus one, you simply have to believe. Two, you've got to work and you've got to earn it. This is the difference between grace and law. Grace only requires belief. Now that belief will impact actions, but that's all that's required, belief. Law requires you to do something. There's a condition attached to it. And so Paul draws out these two figures in Israel's history, Moses to whom the law was given and Abraham to whom the promise. And he says, if the law was given to Moses as God's new plan for salvation, then the promise that was given to Abraham would not have, in fact, been a real promise. It wouldn't have been a promise at all because God knew at some point in the line he was going to attach all these conditions to it. It would still be performance-based. And Paul uses language. He, he, never, he, he, he doesn't use the language of promise. He uses the language of something much more intense. He uses the language of covenant. That God established with Abraham a covenant. And that covenant has lasting impact. Because a covenant, I mean, think of a covenant in like a contract, but like a contract on steroids. I want to I read, I want to look at the passage in Genesis chapter 15. If you want, you can start turning there. Genesis chapter 15. I want to look at how God establishes his covenant with Abraham because how it's established has, has deep impact on not only the covenant and how we see that with Abraham, but even on what Paul is saying to the Galatians. So Genesis chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is Abram and Abraham, same person, name just changes later. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Father, or Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so, servant, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, what Abram is saying to God in this moment, God has come to him and said, Hey, I'm going to be your shield and your great reward. And Abram's response is, Yeah, but I don't have any kids. This is another way, like that's the, that's the manifestation of the deeper question or the deeper thing that, uh, that Abram is wondering, which is, how can I trust you? How can I believe this promise that you're speaking to me, that I will have children, that I will, those descendants will be as many as the sky, uh, stars in the sky? How can I trust and believe what you're telling me, God? And so God reiterates the promise to Abram, he starts talking about, so from verse 4 all the way to verse 8, it's God saying again, this is what I promised. This is what I'm giving my word to. This is what I'm speaking to, blessing and I'm speaking over you. Then verse 8, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Here God had just promised him land again. And again, Abram's like, how can I trust you? How can I believe this promise? So here's where it gets fun. Verse 9, so the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. 
Abram brought all these things to God, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and beautiful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set, And darkness had fallen. A smoking pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, passed between the halves of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and Jebusites. Okay. Super strange passage, right? But it makes sense if you understand how covenants were formed at, in these times. Right? So think of it again. Covenant's like a contract. They didn't sign on the dotted line back there. It wasn't a handshake. They They took covenants very, very seriously. And so the way that they established a covenant back then was you would agree to the terms. I will do this, you will do this, I will promise this, whatever, right? Two parties come together, they agree on the terms. Then, once they agree on the terms, they take animals, right? A couple heifers, a couple goats, a couple rams, whatever. They cut them in half. They then would take the halves of those animals and line them up into two lines. And they would arrange them so that the blood from the animals would drain into the space between the two lines of carcasses. Then the two parties would stand on one end and they would walk between those carcasses, those halves. They'd walk through the blood that's spilling. It's literally a a path of blood. They would walk this path of blood as a way of establishing the covenant by saying, I will keep my end of the covenant, and if I do not, let me be like these animals. Okay? So God, or God says to Abraham, here's what I promise you. And Abraham says, how can I trust you? And God says, get some animals. Cut them in half. We're going to form a covenant. Now think about this for just a moment from Abram's perspective. You're about to enter into a covenant with an all-holy God of the universe and a covenant that is typically based on, right, there's an agreement between the two parties. I'll do this, you do this. Very performance-driven. You're going to enter into a covenant with the all-holy God of the animals. Or, well, he's, all, he's God of the animals, that's true. Uh, all-holy God of the universe, and you're going to walk between these animals and say, if I don't perform, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, let me be like this. I mean, how are you feeling in that moment? Like, you confident? Yep, got this, no problem. Me and God, close buddies, equals I'll be able to handle this. 
or, or are you feeling a little trepidation? Are you feeling like maybe you, you, you might lose in this one? Are you, are you wanting to ensure that this God that you are entering into a covenant is one that you can trust? Maybe we can see now why Abraham kept asking over and over again, yeah, 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 but how can I be sure, God? So Abraham steps up to the line to get ready to walk the blood path to form the covenant with God, and in that moment he falls into a deep sleep. And as Abraham is in a deep sleep, God in the form of a smoking pot travels the blood path. Now, typically when a covenant is formed, both parties walk the blood path. But in this case, only one. Only God walks the blood path. And in doing so, God is saying, this covenant is solely dependent on me. This covenant has nothing to do with whether or not you, Abram, keep your end of the bargain. The blessing, the promise, the salvation, this will come because I, God, will keep my word to fulfill my promise. Now this is a precursor to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law when we couldn't. Jesus took upon himself the full consequence of sin and reconciled us to God when we could not reconcile ourselves. Jesus was fully human when we ourselves could not be human in the way that God intended. Jesus was righteous when we were sinful. Jesus was cursed so that we might become blessed. Jesus kept the covenant. Jesus kept the promise. Jesus fulfilled the law and received the inheritance and then shared that inheritance with us by welcoming us into his family. That's grace and that's what's been extended to us and it's dependent solely on God in his son, Jesus Christ. All we must do is believe. All we must do is believe. And the promise is ours. Now, this takes us all the way back to the, other, to the original question. What does this have to do with the law then? Like, how do you and I relate to the law? And so we have to see that the law is not abolished, it doesn't throw away. The law has a very specific purpose. The law reveals sin, and the law reveals that the covenant of the blessing of God can only be dependent on God. The purpose of the law is not to teach us about salvation. Rather, the purpose of the law is to teach us about ourselves and about our sin and about the fact that we cannot be saved through the law because we cannot keep the law. That there's nothing to do to make sure that the covenant stands. There's nothing we can do to make sure that the covenant continues to happen. There's nothing that we can do to twist God's arm or make God deliver on his promise. The only thing that what the law shows us is that it only depends on God. That God is the one who keeps the promise. That God is the one who fulfills the covenant. That salvation comes by him alone. This is what the law reminds us of. And so most importantly, how we relate to the law is that in the law, we see God's standard and we see clearly that we need a savior. And the law points us to the one who fulfilled the law. The law reveals that we need a savior and the law 
points to the one who saves us by fulfilling the law, Jesus Christ. And so, how do we relate to the law? With humility. We relate to the law to see ourselves clearly and to see the breadth and the depth and the profundity of grace. We relate to the law as one astonished at the wonder of Jesus Christ, fully human, who fulfills the law. Are we terrorized by the law? No. Are we held captive by the law? Are we imprisoned by the law? No, no. Do we beat ourselves up when we fail to keep the law, when we fall short of the standard? No. Because the law clearly reminds us that there's nothing we can do. And the law law does not negate the promise that God gave to Abraham and the new covenant that he established in his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have, we don't practice a performative-based Christianity where we do things to look good in the eyes of God. And we ought not to have a performative Christianity so we look good in the eyes of others. Our, our faith is not based on performance, it's based on promise. God's promise. And we can trust the promise because God in Jesus did what we could not do. God in Jesus walked the blood path for us so that the covenant might be kept and the blessings would be extended to us. This is gospel. This is grace. This is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the life of Jesus Christ who lived perfect life, who fulfilled the law in a way that we never could and did not use that to beat us up, did not live that life to lord it over us, but rather in his fulfillment of the law, got down on his knees and washed our feet, showed us what grace looked like, and then invited us Invited us prodigals to come home to experience grace and to be treated as treated as and seen as righteous. We give you thanks for this gift of grace. We give you thanks for this reality in our lives, and I pray that gratitude, gratitude as we continue to study the gospel and look at it, gratitude would well up and overflow out of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.